0: Well, we took a little two-week break uh, for Remembrance Day and uh, guest speaker. And uh, now we are back to our parables. And uh, this one is one of my favorite, the rich man and Lazarus. And all of Jesus' parables have a great point and they have a great punch. uh, But there's something about this particular parable that really resonates with me and stays with me in my mind. Uh, We're going to read the entire parable through Uh, It's just so you get a picture of the whole uh, sense of the story and then we're going to jump in and kind of look at the details So we're going to begin if you have your Bibles encourage you to open to Luke chapter 16 We're going to read verses 19 to 31 uh, or start the app on your smartphone as well Luke 16 19 There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen lived in luxury every day So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen. To them, no, Father Abraham. He said, "But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent." He they said to him, "If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead." So this past week, uh, there was a new movie that opened, uh, Doctor Strange, one of the Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe movies. And so uh, I took Ray, and the two of us went to the movie. And uh, really interesting movie. Uh, really uh, lots of interesting things in there, including a fantastic character arc, where the main character, Dr. Strange, he's a really successful surgeon at a huge hospital in downtown London. And uh, this guy is the top of his field. He has incredible skills. People come from all over the world, and he performs surgeries that no one else can seem to, and his hands are unbelievably steady, and he is so steady, and he's so good at what he does, and he is paid very, very well for his services. And at the beginning of the movie, you meet him, and you see him in the operating table, and you see how he's just so full of himself. He knows he's the best thing since sliced bread, and he tells everybody about it. And he's just incredibly arrogant and condescending to everyone around him. And life is going along in his eyes really well until he has a horrendous car accident and his hands are ruined. The very thing that gave him such skill as a surgeon. And he kind of spirals down into a real depressive and angry state. And he's just so upset that his hands can't be healed. And he finally goes off uh, in search of healing. And he finds a guy who tells him that it's possible for his hands to get healed if he goes to Nepal, to the city of Kathmandu. Uh, there's a Christian organization called Focus on the Family, and one of the things they do is called um, Plugged In Movie Reviews. And in the past, I haven't been a huge fan of their movie reviews. Uh, they're pretty superficial uh, but I looked up this one, and uh, they have a new fellow on staff, his name's Paul Assay. He did an absolutely beautiful review of this movie, and kind of helping us sort through it as uh, followers of Christ, uh, what's good and what's bad about the movie. Uh, but there's an amazing scene, then, and we've got a little clip for it. Now you got to realize this movie's in theater, so I don't even know how this clip is on the internet, but somehow I prayed and God sent it. Uh, so... It, It's not the all-time best quality, but I think you'll get the point really good. So as uh, Dan is turning down the lights and we're getting ready for the clip, um, this is Dr. Strange when he finally makes it to Kathmandu uh, in Nepal, and he meets a teacher, and she is attempting to open his eyes to a bigger reality than he is known. So let's take a look. I spent my last dollar getting here on my ticket and you're talking to me about healing through belief. You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole. And you've spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole to see more, to know more. And now, on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility. No, I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. You're just another tiny momentary speck within an indifferent universe. You think too little of yourself. Oh, you think you see through me, do you? or well, you don't. But I see through you! chose that clip is because of his statement. He says, there is no such thing as spirit. We are matter and nothing more. But you know what? As followers of Jesus Christ, we are privileged to lovingly and gently say to others, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. There is more than what you can just touch and taste and see. There really is a spiritual realm. And in this parable, when Lazarus the beggar dies, the angels come and gently carry his soul to paradise beside Abraham. Why does Jesus choose Abraham as the figure that's waiting for Lazarus? Well, in the Bible, Abraham is considered the man of faith, the archetype of faith. And the steps of faith that Abraham took in his lifetime are astounding. And the Bible really holds him up as the father of faith. And Lazarus, during his entire lifetime, as he was suffering, as he had sores, as he was starving, and he was at the gate of this rich man, he had faith that carried him through all of the worst things that he was experiencing in life. And he knew that his life was still in God's hands. And when he dies... His faith is rewarded. The angels gently pick him up and they carry him to paradise to be with Abraham. He knew the reality of the spiritual world. He knew that there is more than just the material that we can touch, taste, or see. Richard Dawkins, the famous famous atheist, he says, the universe is nothing but a collection of atoms in motion. Human beings are simply machines for propagating DNA, and the propagation of DNA is a self-sustaining process. It is every living object's sole reason for living. And we need to ask ourselves, is there really nothing more to the universe than that? Are we going to say with Francis Crick, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity, your free will to choose, are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associate molecules. Is that all we are? Is everything in our life just predetermined by matter, by our genetics? Well, Christian uh, philosopher John Polkinghorne, he responds, and this is what he says, He says, that kind of thinking, not only does it relegate our experiences of beauty, of moral obligation and religious encounter to the scrap heap, it also destroys rational thought. Thinking is replaced by electrochemical neural events. Two such events cannot confront each other in a debate. They are neither right nor wrong. They simply happen. See, what he's saying is, if we are just the product of atoms in motion, if our thoughts are nothing more than neurochemical reactions, then all rational thought collapses. Chemicals can't have an argument together. And we agree. We know that rational thought is happening. It's happening right now as you listen to me. Unless some of you are sleeping, in which case I'm going to come beat you with wet spaghetti. (laughs) But we know that rational thought is happening. We know that there's more than just matter to us. We know there's a spiritual realm. So philosophically and rationally, we know there's more. Our own experience also tells us that there's a spiritual realm. How do we account, if we are nothing more than matter, how do we account for that incredible desire that wells it up in us? When we're here gathered together as a local church on a Sunday morning and the worship team's leading us in worship, isn't there something in your heart that just wants to worship God? There is. And if we reduce it to mere atoms, we can't explain that. As the old saying goes, there are no atheists on the battlefield or in a plane that's about to crash. There's something deep in our hearts that knows there's more than just atoms, more than just stuff. And the experiences of God's Spirit in the life of Christ followers over and over attest to this. In my own life, The moment when I was about to start my first pastoral role, way back in 1995. And that summer I had worked at Camp Kwanos, and it was the last week of the summer, and I remember feeling overwhelmed. I was in the chapel, and I was realizing in three weeks I was about to start my first pastoral job. And I remember having this conversation with God. I said, God, I'm not adequate for this. I cannot do this. Not a huge, long list of friends that were more talented, that had better speaking ability, that had a million attributes that I didn't have. And I say, "God, why don't you send one of them?" And God and I were having this amazing conversation, and it's the only time God has audibly spoke to me. It was like a booming voice inside my head. If we are mere atoms, if there's no spiritual realm, how do we account for things like that? I think each one of us has probably experienced the amazing reality that when we are in a desperate situation, that when we pray, God does something incredible in our hearts and minds. He gives us, the Bible calls it, a peace that surpasses all rational thought. A supernatural peace. When my daughter Callista, when she was five, and she had that huge surgery on her ear... And the doctor was telling us that she could lose every sense of taste in her tongue. She could lose her hearing. She could, uh, her face could be disfigured. I remember being so anxious. And I remember just praying and praying and praying. And God sent that incredible sense of peace that does surpass all rational thought. If we are nothing but atoms, how do we account for things like that? Last week in our Remembrance Day service, we told the story of Louis Zamperini. This amazing guy, and all that he experienced, the horrors of the Second World War. And when he came home, his life was spiraling down because of post-traumatic stress. And he, he couldn't sleep at night. He was an alcoholic. It was ruining everything about his life. And the moment he walked up in that Billy Graham crusade and accepted Christ, This incredible change came over him. And for the first time in five years, he slept that night. And he had no dreams of terror, and they never haunted him again. If we are nothing but atoms, how do we account for those kind of experiences in people's lives? There is a spiritual realm. And we, as believers in Jesus, should shout it from the rooftops. We're going to move on to our second point that there is an afterlife. Simon Kistemacher in his book, The Parables of Jesus. This is what he says. He says, everything changed at the moment of death. Lazarus was given a place of highest honor next to the father of the believers. Angels had brought him to Abraham's side where he would enjoy the company of God's people. The rich man who on earth was surrounded by friends no longer bore the name rich in hell. Stripped of all his wealth, he was alone. You know, I don't know how many funerals or memorial services I've done in my life as a pastor, but it's a fair amount. I was privileged to do a graveside service yesterday. And one thing is extremely common amongst all of those services is that people that don't necessarily go to church, don't, wouldn't profess a belief in God uh, any other day of the week, when they're standing in front of the grave of a loved one, almost every single one that I've ever met is convinced that their relative is in heaven with God. That's a really interesting fact, considering that if you met them two weeks before, they would say, I'm not sure if there's a heaven at all. There is an afterlife. And this parable lays it out pretty plain for us. There's something deep within the human heart that desperately believes that death is not the end something happens beyond this grave, the grave. In this parable, Jesus lays it out pretty plain. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. For a follower of Jesus, we have hope both in this life and in the life to come. But our destiny in the afterlife is determined by our choice in this life two destinies, to -to face-to-face with God or separation from God. It becomes clear that the rich man had a vague belief in God, or at least a cultural understanding of God. But he certainly did not submit himself to following God during his life. Well, where do I see that in the text? Well, both men were Jews. But the rich man ignored God's commands to care for for his poverty-stricken fellow Jew. And in the parable, he calls Abraham his father. And Abraham, in turn, calls him his son. Why he's doing that is because ethnically, he's Jewish. He's saying, you're the father, one of the fathers of our race. So ethnically, this guy was Jewish, but our ancestry is never enough for us to experience eternal salvation, to be in the presence of God for eternity, beyond the reach of pain or sorrow or mourning or crying. That privilege, the Bible says, is reserved for those who take themselves off the center of their life, take themselves out of the throne, and put Christ on it. That's an important point because... Some people grow up in a context where it is assumed because of their ethnic background that they are automatically a follower of Jesus. At least up until recent times, if you were born in Italy and you are a good Italian, you are almost automatically, the thinking goes, I'm a Catholic Christian believer. But it's interesting, the Bible doesn't support that. It doesn't say where you're born or the ethnic group you're born into equals salvation. It would also be true uh, for some of the Dutch Reformed Christian people that I've talked to. They would say the same thing. They would say, of course I'm a Christian. I'm born Dutch. I'm part of the church. You know what? It wasn't true for the rich man in Jesus' parable and it isn't true for any of us either. Every person makes their own choice about Christ. Is Jesus our Lord and our Savior or not? True belief in God would have resulted in the rich man caring for Lazarus, the beggar at his gates. And he would have known this. It lays it out really clear in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8, this is what it says. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. You know, even in hell the rich man appears unrepentant. He does not appeal to God for mercy, but to Abraham. He called Abraham his father. And he expected the patriarch of his race to have pity on one of his descendants. Well, what's Abraham's response in this parable? Verse 25 and 26, Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You know, this parable ultimately represents the call to repent before it is too late. So how does all of this matter to you and I here this morning? First, I need a sip of tea. Well, challenge number one, if you are sitting here this morning and in your heart of hearts, you believe that the material universe, that what we can see, touch, taste, or smell is all that exists, then this parable comes along with a loving challenge and says, you're wrong. You need to investigate more. Open up your heart and mind to the possibility of the spiritual. Jeremiah 333 3 has been called God's phone number. It's a great verse. It says, call to me, And I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. God has made the offer. We need to take him up on it. Challenge number two, there is an afterlife. If you're stumbling through life with not one minute given to thinking about what comes after we die, this parable challenges us. There is life beyond death. What do we know about it? How does the reality of eternity affect how we live now our decisions in this life challenge number three there are two destinies face to face with god or separation from god you know i've met people throughout uh, my pastoral career that they attend church every week they're pretty faithful at coming they love the people in the church they make lots of friendships they even serve in church But in their heart of hearts, they have ultimately said, you know what, all of this is great for these other people. It's great for them. It works for them. But it's not for me. I'm good. I don't need to know Jesus in a personal way. And if that's what you're thinking, this parable challenges you with your eternal destiny. Where do you want to spend it? Face-to-face face with God or in eternal separation from Him? My first point focused on the nature of reality and what God says about it. And my second point, I want to look at life in all of its beauty and pain and discover how God intends for us to live. Wealth and self-centeredness can blind us. I want to make some quick observations about the rich man in his purple robes and fine linen. Several years ago, I got to go on a trip to Israel with a bunch of pastors. And one of the areas we were down right on the ocean, right on the Mediterranean, and uh, the guy reached down and he reached into the surf and he picked up some cool little snails. And he said, these little snails changed the economy of the ancient world. And he says, these little snails are an incredible little thing. They're God's dye machine." And he goes, each snail gives you one to two drops of a beautiful purple dye. Now here's the crazy part. It takes 9,000 snails to get a tablespoon of dye. So you can imagine (laughs) how much work it would be to dye something like a king's huge robe that he would wear. And all through the Bible, everywhere you see royalty, it's always associated with the color purple. Reason was, it took so much work to dye something like that that the only people that could afford it were almost the extremely rich or royalty. And this guy has a purple robe. That little detail in the story is telling you this guy's incredibly rich. It also says he had fine linen. That would have kind of been the undergarment under his purple robe. And in the ancient world, that only came from one place. It came from Egypt. And they were the experts in making this super beautiful, fine linen. It would have been very costly to get it there, to buy it, to have it tailored. This guy had a lot of cash. In fact, the parable tells us he doesn't even need to work. He just simply kind of spends his days feasting and banqueting and hanging out with his friends. And we know from the second part of the parable that the rich man knew the name of the beggar at his front gate. He calls him Lazarus. In 1624, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. He knew the beggar's name. But you know what? In his entire life, he knew his name, but he had never actually seen him. Oh, he had gazed at him, But he was so unimportant in his eyes, he almost treated him like a piece of trash on his front steps. An entire lifetime, Lazarus is there starving to death. He's in terrible health, and this rich guy doesn't do a thing for him. It would have been nothing to tell one of the servants, leave him a plate of food from the banquet could have left a bowl of soap and water for him to clean himself. Could have left ointment for his sores. Could have left him a set of clothes. Nothing, not one thing ever over an entire lifetime. And he knew better. As we said Deuteronomy 157 8, If there is among you a poor man of brethren within any of your gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. This guy knew what he should do. He just refused to do it. And you know what? There are lots of good, generous, God-fearing, Bible-believing, rich people that have done a ton of good with the wealth they have been given. I appreciate those people. You know what my prayer for is? God, give them more because they, in turn, bless others with it. But there are a whole bunch of other people in the world that their wealth and their selfishness blinds them blinds them to caring about god to caring about other people and this parable challenges that and really the question even for the rest of us who may not have 10 million in our bank account but compared to the people that Jackie met in Zambia we are actually phenomenally wealthy And the question this parable leaves with us, am I using the resources that God has given me to care for the poorest of the poor? Do I do up a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child? Will I contribute to the Christmas hampers this year for struggling families right here in Ladysmith? Ultimately, am I a good manager of the resources that God has blessed me with? The rich man in this parable was not a good manager. And it caused him to step over and ignore Lazarus at his gate every day. May you and I never, ever follow in that rich man's steps. So if someone's trapped in that kind of mindset, how do they break out of it? What's the thing that kind of jars us into a new way of thinking? You know what it is? It's the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's the words that God has said. And it's the cure for our deafness and our blindness. This parable that Jesus told ties in really well with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, this is what he declares. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. The rich man in the parable decides he's storing up his riches right here on earth. He spends his wealth on himself and his guests. But if he had used his wealth, at least in part, to care for Lazarus and all the other poor that were in his vicinity, he would have in fact been storing up treasures in heaven. It's the word of God and the example of Jesus Christ that cut through our blindness and our deafness to the needs of others around us. I love how the book of Hebrews in the second half of the Bible describes the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus' description of Lazarus' hunger in this parable cuts to my heart. It says he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. You know, that the sad reality is that in our world today, there are starving people around the world that could be saved from starvation with what we as Canadians throw in the trash heap. I think that's one of the reasons I get so excited about our teams going over the Fraser Valley Gleaners in the summer. This summer... Past summer, we had our best attended team. They made a phenomenal difference to world hunger by serving for one week. And all of that is stuff that would have normally been thrown out. I think this parable challenges us in deep ways that stretch across 2,000 years and says, how are we like the rich man? How is the very scraps from our table, how could that, feed a starving world. Well, the last kind of point is that Jesus' followers simply should not be committing sins of omission. We shouldn't be failing to do the good. Again, our friend Simon Kistemacher in his book on parables has this to tell us. He says, the rich man did not deserve hellish torment for what he had done in his life on earth, but for what he had failed to do he had neglected to love god and love his neighbor he had disregarded god and his words ultimately the rich man's life is a clear indication that he had no faith no true belief in god and he certainly wasn't willing to live life god's way jesus says in matthew 7:20 thus by your fruits by their fruits you will recognize them An apple tree doesn't produce kiwi fruit. A pear tree doesn't produce lemons. And over a period of years, any authentic follower of Jesus Christ should be found at some point loving their neighbor, doing things for others, serving in the church and the community, praying for others, giving generously to help those in need. The rich man failed to do any good and it was an indication of of where his heart was truly at. Beginning today and imagining yourself three years from now, what would non-Christian people, people that have not yet decided to follow Jesus, what would they see or notice about your life? Would they observe enough instances of loving God and loving other people that they could positively determine that you are in fact a follower of Christ? I love how the apostle Paul states in the letter to the Ephesians, second half of the Bible. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We don't have to earn it. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And here's the incredible verse, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's got a plan. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for my life. And the only thing is whether we will choose to say yes or we will choose to say no. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to walk away with three challenges this morning. This parable of Jesus is meant to challenge us to move from unbelief to Belief. There is a spiritual reality. There is life after death. There is an eternal destiny for those who put their hope in Christ. Secondly, this parable challenges us to moving from being blind and deaf to the suffering and needs of others, to be able to see and hear in the power of Christ to respond to those who most need our help. And finally, this parable challenges us to move from being people who omit to do the good to those who fall in the footsteps of Jesus and take action in the face of our world's desperate need. Amen?